0: You can often judge a society by the way it treats its least fortunate members. In particular, the disabled and the mentally ill. Historical records dating back centuries paint a rather bleak picture of how various cultures dealt with the mentally ill. Evidence of attempts to treat mental illness can be found dating back as early as 5000 BCE. As is seen in the number of human skulls that have been discovered containing signs of a disturbing medical procedure known as trephination. You see, Early man believed that mental illness was the result of evil spirits and demons inhabiting the body, and the best way to get rid of those evil entities was by giving them an escape hatch, namely, chiseling a large hole in the skull. The belief that mental illness was caused by supernatural forces can be seen elsewhere throughout many different cultures. Ancient Hebrews thought that mental illness was inflicted upon people as a punishment from God. The ancient Greeks held a similar belief except such a punishment was thought to come from any of their pantheon of gods, who were believed to be a particularly touchy lot who took offense at a lot of different things. But as early as the 5th century, there were a few rogue physicians who began to reject this idea, suggesting instead that the causes of mental illness might be a physiological condition rather than a supernatural curse. It was the ancient Egyptians who seemed to be the most forward-thinking in terms of treating their mentally ill. They would often engage their patients in recreational activities such as dancing and painting as a way of taking their minds off their troubles and soothing their battered psyches. Even still, throughout ancient Greece, Rome, and other cultures, treatment of mental illness was often left up to the local spiritual healer, instead of providing any sort of more earthly treatment. The Greek physician Hippocrates turned much of this thinking around when he wrote a lengthy treatise explaining that mental illness was not spiritual but rather the result of a physical imbalance in the essential bodily fluids. As a result, the most common treatments for mental illness were bleeding the patient either by cutting them or through the application of leeches. It's pretty clear that even though our ancestors didn't have a clue what could cause someone to become mentally ill, they had all sorts of ideas about how to treat them that were, well, downright crazy. The belief that mental illness was the result of a fluid imbalance remained common throughout the Middle Ages. For a few centuries at least, mental illness was considered a personal matter in which families would care for their sick relative at home. This was often a pretty terrible solution since many families saw their relatives as a source of personal shame. and would often lock them away in cellars and attics, cage them in pigpins, or simply boot them out into the streets to fend for themselves. But local towns and villages didn't seem to care much for letting the mentally challenged wander freely among them either. And eventually the idea came about to create special hospitals where they could be kept and, at least ostensibly, be treated. The first mental hospital was established in Baghdad in 792 CE, with others in Aleppo and Damascus following shortly thereafter. The idea caught on in Europe as well, and by the late 17th century privately run mental asylums began to proliferate and expand in size. Of all the insane asylums in the world, few have become quite as infamous as London's Bethlehem Royal Hospital. The horrors that were inflicted upon its patients there have become legendary, and have inspired countless books, movies, and television shows. You see Bethlehem Royal Hospital is better known by a different name, a name that has taken on a life of its own and become a part of common vocabulary. It's a name that means a scene of utter madness or confusion. Although the official name for the facility is Bethlehem Royal Hospital, you'll probably know it much better as Bedlam. I'm Nate Hale, and the voices in my head assure me that I'm perfectly sane. And this is The Conspirators. The started as a priory back in 1247. It was founded by the Italian bishop, Gioffredo de Perfidi, and it was built directly atop a sewer that frequently overflowed. The monks who inhabited the priory took in the indigent, who often exhibited symptoms of mental illness. It's unclear when exactly the priory's mission shifted completely over to the care of the mentally ill. It began being referred to as a hospital in 1330 and would begin admitting its first mental patients by 1407. By the 1600s, control of the facility was transferred from the church to the state. The state moved the facility to a new location north of London to the Moorfields in 1675. There, they erected two ominous-looking statues over the entrance gate. One was a calm, serene-looking individual they named Melancholy, while the other was that of a chained and enraged individual they named Raving Madness. From the very beginning, the new building had problems. From the outside, it was beautiful, a massive Gothic structure modeled after the French Palace of Versailles, with formal gardens and tree-lined promenades. But that beauty was only skin deep. Because the ornate facade was so heavy, it immediately cracked at the back, leaving a gaping opening to the elements. Whenever it rained, the walls ran with water. Because it was built on the rubble from the ancient Roman wall that once ran through the city, the building didn't even have a proper foundation. Over the centuries Bedlam began to pack more and more patients into the facility under terrible conditions. Schizophrenics, epileptics, people with basic learning disorders and pretty much anyone else the state declared unfit for society were crammed in together and given over to Bedlam for treatment. When I say treatment, keep in mind most of the workers inside Bedlam were unlicensed with little or no medical training whatsoever. The treatments the facility's doctors prescribed for its patients were, at best, unhelpful, and at worst, downright barbaric. One such procedure was rotational therapy. In this procedure, the patient will be placed in a chair and suspended from the ceiling. The chair was then spun in the direction of the doctor, sometimes at more than 100 rotations a minute, causing the patient to vomit and experience extreme vertigo. For some bizarre reason, the doctors came to believe that experiencing something that sounds like the worst theme park ride in history could actually cure your mental issues. In 1728, James Monroe became Bedlam's chief physician. He wouldn't be the last Monroe either. For four generations, members of James Monroe's family would continue to run the facility. Over time, the Monroes shifted their medical focus on more extreme and experimental methods of treatment. Patients were often beaten, starved, dunked in ice-cold baths, and treated by bloodletting with leeches. The treatment patients received was so severe they actually began to turn people away they deemed too weak to survive it. Although it's clear that even the strong couldn't always survive, modern investigators have discovered mass graves on the old hospital grounds containing many still unidentified human remains. Perhaps the greatest indignity of all was when the hospital began opening its doors and began charging admission to see the patients. Initially, the policy was created to allow family members to visit their loved ones. But eventually, complete strangers began to pour in by the droves, willing to pay good money to see the freak show within. In 1795, a man named John Haslam was appointed to run Bethlehem Hospital, and he was not a nice man. He believed that mental illness could be cured by breaking the will of the patient through repeated torture. Haslam's tenure came to an end when Quaker philanthropist Edward Wakefield visited the facility in 1814, and saw what Haslam and his employees had been doing. Fearing the bad publicity, Haslam tried to keep Wakefield out, but eventually he managed to gain entry in the company of a hospital governor and a member of British Parliament. What Wakefield witnessed shocked him. Throughout the facility, he saw naked, starving men chained to the walls. The worst case of them all was James Norris, whose chains actually ran through the wall to his cell into an adjoining room. When the staff saw fit, they would yank on the chains, slamming Norris into the wall. When Wakefield asked how long this had been going on, they told him somewhere between nine and twelve years. Once word got out about the barbaric conditions inside Bedlam, the finger-pointing began. Aslam tried laying the blame on his chief surgeon, Brian Crowther, who himself had spent years performing highly illegal dissections on deceased patients. Crowther turned around and blamed Haslam for everything that was going on. Eventually, both men were fired. In 1815, the crumbling building was finally torn down, but even today, Bedlam lives on. Today Bethlehem Hospital is run out of a state-of-the-art facility in Beckenham that includes a museum dedicated to the dark history of the place. It remains the longest continually running mental hospital in Europe, and the term Bedlam has gone on to become synonymous with chaos and madness. The concept of the Insane Asylum became a popular one that spread throughout Europe and would eventually be carried over the ocean to America. Chances are that sometime in your life you've read a creepy book or seen a scary movie set in an insane asylum. The Asylum, as we know it, has inspired authors and artists and filmmakers for generations. It's one of those most quintessential of settings for a good scary story, like The Cabin in the Woods or The Old Haunted Mansion. There's just something about these massive castle-like structures that seems to inspire fear in people on a primal level. Famed horror author H.P. Lovecraft created his own fictional asylum known as Arkham, and it was here that all manner of otherworldly creatures were lurking, just beyond some other dimensional veil. The same name and much of the lore behind it were co-opted by the creators of the Batman comics with Gotham City's own Arkham Asylum. But did you know Arkham was based on a real place? The Danvers State Hospital for the Criminally Insane was opened in 1878 to serve roughly 600 mental patients in Massachusetts. Although initially it was built with a surprisingly caring and humane attitude toward the treatment of its patients, those good intentions only lasted so long. The hospital's foundation was built on Hawthorne Hill in Danvers, Massachusetts, a location named after the land's former owner, John Hawthorne, a man whose own infamy came from his deep involvement in the Salem Witch Trials. Hawthorne had such a terrible reputation that his great-great-grandson, the author Nathaniel Hawthorne, actually altered the spelling of his last name to disassociate himself from his ancestor. As I mentioned, the initial design of the facility was based on hope. Dr. Thomas Kirkbride designed the building to have four wings radiating out of a central structure in order to allow the patients to have more ready access to sunlight and fresh air. When it finally opened its doors in 1878, it was called the State Lunatic Hospital, and it was considered to be the state-of-the-art facility for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. The patients were granted a great deal of freedom to move throughout the facility. They even worked in the community gardens and farmland to produce the food they ate. Below ground, the entire campus was connected by a series of brick tunnels to allow easy movement between buildings and to provide shelter during the harsh New England winters. But over the years, the original humane mission for the hospital pretty much faded away. More patients were added each year, and budget cuts prevented the hospital from hiring more staff to help them. By the 1920s, the hospital was home to more than 2,000 patients, more than four times the original number, with a staff of less than a dozen to serve them all. Illness and starvation were frequent. It wasn't uncommon for a patient to die in some corner of the hospital and for his or her corpse to go undetected for days. With so few staff to manage so many patients, the doctors turned to increasingly harsh methods to keep people in check hydrotherapy, electroshock therapy, and the newly created procedure known as the lobotomy were used frequently. Although the lobotomy was originally performed through some fairly intrusive brain surgery, a doctor named Walter Freeman perfected a new method he called the transorbital lobotomy that became the norm in Danvers State Hospital and other asylums throughout the United States. For the new version of this procedure, Dr. Freeman didn't need to cut open anyone's skull as had previously been done. No. All he needed to do was hammer an ice pick into the inner corner of a patient's eye and scramble the person's frontal lobe by stirring the ice pick around. Oh, and by the way, he did all this without the use of any anesthetics. For just $25 per patient, Dr. Freeman actually traveled across the country performing his transorbital lobotomies at many different mental hospitals. He did this traveling around in a van which he called, and I swear I'm not making this up, his lobotomobile. As for the patients themselves, the majority of the people who underwent the procedure were profoundly changed. Many lost the ability to walk, speak, or feed themselves, and had to relearn how. Around 15% of them died during the procedure. During his US tour, Dr. Freeman performed more than 3,500 lobotomies in 23 states, including one he performed on a four-year-old child, to which I can only say, in a world in which so many people were locked away for being insane. It was the people watching over them who were the ones to be really afraid of. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. By the 1950s, the surgical lobotomy was eliminated and replaced with new drugs such as Thorazine, which performed a similar and ostensibly a more humane function. Dr. Freeman wasn't the only medical professional whose methods of treatment were crazier than the patients they were purportedly treating. In 1907, New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital came under the supervision of a new director, Dr. Henry Cotton. Cotton was trained at Johns Hopkins University under the eminent Swiss-born psychiatrist Adolf Meyer. And in some respects, he had some very progressive attitudes towards the mentally ill. When he took charge of Trenton State Hospital, he did away with all the mechanical restraints for the patients and introduced a new program of occupational therapy to prepare the patients for integration back into public life. But at the same time, Dr. Cotton developed a dangerous theory about mental illness that took the hospital down a dark path. Dr. Cotton became convinced that all mental illness was caused by a bodily infection, and the only way to remove that infection was to cut it out. In 1917, he began removing all his patients teeth. Then, when that didn't work to cure their mental illness, he moved on to other body parts. He performed surgery to remove gallbladders, stomachs, ovaries, testicles, colons, uteruses, and any other part of the body where he believed infection could reside. Although Dr. Cotton claimed to have an 85% cure rate, in truth, his mortality rate was far higher. Believe it or not, Cotton did all this in full view of the public, and he actually published several scientific papers about his methods. He remained at the hospital performing his butchery until 1930, three years before his death. The Trenton State Hospital continued to the doctor's teeth-pulling methods into the 1960s. Danvers State Hospital was officially closed down in 1992. Today, much of the original structure is gone, and a series of luxury apartments have been built in its place. The underground tunnels are still there, and so is a little of the main Kirkbride building. There's also one other reminder of the past, the cemetery, where so many of the residents who died within the hospital's walls were laid to rest. Amateur ghost hunters have occasionally set up camp in and around the campus, hoping to find evidence of the supernatural. Now, I'm not going to argue whether or not you should believe in ghosts, I'm pretty skeptical myself. But I would like to point out that in April 2007, four of the apartment buildings and several construction trailers caught fire. A cause for the fire has never been determined, and likely never will. For you see the security cameras that guarded the facility mysteriously cut out right before the blaze began. Although Danvers Hospital has taken on a new life of sorts in recent years, there are many other similar facilities throughout the United States that have fallen into decay. During the 1980s, there was a nationwide push to do away with such facilities in favor of smaller group homes, or, as has happened more times than any of us would care to admit, by simply shoving the patient out onto the street and saying, Good luck. Most of these mental institutions have long had a terrible reputation that was occasionally brought to the public's attention by a few muckraking reporters. There was Nellie Bly, the late 19th century reporter who gained worldwide fame by purposefully committing herself to an asylum to get the inside scoop. During the 1960s, none other than Robert Kennedy toured Staten Island's Willowbrook State School, and was appalled by the conditions he witnessed firsthand. Willowbrook was an institution for mentally disabled children and what Kennedy saw caused him to refer to the place as a snake pit. But it wasn't until a few years later when a young reporter named Geraldo Rivera came to Willowbrook and shot an award-winning documentary that revealed these truly terrible conditions to the world. Patients were left to wander the facility naked and covered in their own filth. Many patients were brutally beaten, and some were sexually assaulted by staff members. We look at these sort of institutions as places to be feared, You need only watch the grainy film footage revealed in Rivera's expose to see why. What went on there at Willowbrook and other mental hospitals around the country was nothing short of monstrous. They locked them away out of the public eye because they made people uncomfortable and sometimes afraid. And although they eventually closed down Willowbrook in the 1980s after years of public outcry, it turns out the residents who lived around Willowbrook really did have something to fear. It seems Willowbrook may have had a monster in its midst after all. The residents of Staten Island would sometimes tell their children scary stories about their own particular brand of boogeyman they called Cropsy, an escaped lunatic with a hook for a hand who stole bad little boys and girls. But in the 1970s, those stories became very real when a local drifter named Andre Rand began attacking the children of Staten Island. Rand was a former janitor at Willowbrook State School. Rand quit his job long before the school closed, but he didn't go far. In 1972, five-year-old Alice Pereira vanished while out playing with her brother. In 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes was spotted with Rand shortly before she disappeared. In 1983, 11-year-old Tia Heese Jackson disappeared right after Rand was released from a short stint in prison for kidnapping 11 children. I know. Why on earth did he get such a short prison sentence for kidnapping 11 children? Who knows? Then in 1984, 22-year-old Hank Gafforio, a mentally disabled man, also went missing after witnesses placed him with Rand. None of their bodies were ever discovered. Then in 1987, 12-year-old Jennifer Schweiger, who had Down syndrome, told her parents she was going out for a walk. She never returned. A search party went out looking for her. They found Jennifer's body partially buried in a shallow grave not far from the abandoned remains of Willowbrook School. Soon the trail led them to Rand, who had been living in a makeshift camp in the woods nearby. Although there was little evidence to tie Rand to Jennifer Schweiger's murder, he was eventually convicted of her kidnapping and sentenced to 25 years in prison. In 2004, another 25 years was added to his sentence when he was convicted of the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. Officially, the disappearances of Tia Heese Jackson, Alice Pereira, and Hank Gafforio remain unsolved, although most law enforcement officials believe Rand was behind them all. Although many of these facilities I've mentioned were built according to the Kirkbride plan, which was, at least on the surface, meant to rehabilitate the patient, it wasn't so for Waltham, Massachusetts, Fernald State School. The institution was originally called the Massachusetts School for Idiotic Children, and there was no rehabilitation to be had for the children who were dumped on its doorstep. The boys who lived there were subjected to a variety of physical and sexual abuse on a daily basis. The school had something they called Red Cherry Days, in which one child was chosen at random to have his pants pulled down and his bottom beaten until it was red as a cherry. Then there were the experiments. During the 1950s, MIT researchers working with the Quaker Oats Company showed up at the school looking for participants in a human radiation experiment they were conducting. They wanted to study the way the body absorbs calcium and iron by feeding some of the Fernald residents cereal laced with radioactive isotopes. The boys who participated were told they were joining the science club. None of the boys, nor their families, knew the nature of the experiments they were being subjected to. Although it was never proven that the amount of radioactive material the boys ingested was harmful, nonetheless, in 1998, MIT and the Quaker Oats Company agreed to pay $1.85 million dollars to members of the science club. In all these stories I've shared, one common theme is the lasting marks these asylums have left on the patients. There is one final story I'd like to share where, quite literally, the reverse is true. In 1874, Ohio's Athens Lunatic Asylum opened its doors and for years catered to Civil War veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Eventually, patients of all stripes were admitted, although sometimes, those same patients never left again. One such patient was Margaret Schilling, who disappeared from the facility on December 1, 1979. The staff made a cursory effort to locate Margaret, But eventually gave up the search and wrote her off as an escapee but it turns out Margaret never left the hospital after all 42 days later they discovered Margaret's naked body on the top floor of a sealed off ward that had once been used to quarantine infectious patients her clothes were folded neatly next to her body Margaret's official cause of death was listed as heart failure but even that has been disputed Some people say that Margaret was a deaf mute who got trapped on the upper floor and was unable to call for help before freezing to death during the frigid winter. Others say she may have been murdered by one of the other patients, or even a staff member. Whatever the circumstances of her death may have been, there's no doubt Margaret left an indelible mark on the hospital. Her decomposing body lay there long enough to leave a human-shaped stain on the concrete floor that remains there to this day. No amount of scrubbing has ever been able to remove the mark. In 2008, the Journal of Forensic Sciences studied the stain and determined that it was the result of a chemical reaction between her bodily fluids and the cleaning agents used on the floor. The hospital closed in 1993. And although some people claim to see Margaret's ghost in the upper windows of the facility from time to time, one thing is absolutely true. There's a part of Margaret that will remain in the asylum forever. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank each and every one of you for helping make this podcast a success beyond my wildest expectations. Special thanks to Kurt from Belgium for clicking the donate button on our website and helping support the show. I hope you'll continue to spread the love and tell your friends and family to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. I wanted to let you know that The Conspirators is now part of the Dark Myths Collective, an amazing group of some of the best podcast storytellers out there. As part of the collective, I wanted to recommend one of the shows I really enjoy. If you're into strange stuff like me, but with a healthy dose of skepticism and real science coming from a real scientist, then you need to check out Chris Cogswell's Mad Scientist podcast. Thanks again for listening to my own show. I hope you come back and give us another listen next week when I'll have another strange story from history.